Welcome on into Studio Two. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Hello, I'm Shirley Min in for Cherry Gregg. Today on the show, Center City. For decades, office workers have been the lifeblood of downtown neighborhoods after the abrupt shift abrupt shift to remote work. What does the future look like? And could some of those old office buildings become apartments? I wrote the abrupt shift line. I'm sorry about <laughs> that. That that was that was stupid. You set uh, me up to fail. Yeah. I'm very happy to have you today, Sean. <laughs> uh, what do you think about Center City these days? Would you like to see some changes in Philly's downtown? If so, what? Give us a call. 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Later in the hour, we'll talk about pet pigs with a local woman who has become a national authority on the subject. And then later in this segment, we speak with a local family whose beloved matriarch was among the hostages released yesterday by Hamas. But first, surely, as is custom, we're going to go through a few headlines, starting with one here in Pennsylvania. Today, the Department of State has rolled out a new format for the mail-in ballot. And the upshot is basically they want the mail-in ballot to be more clear, to make it easier for people to know what information they need to fill out. They're doing that with some shading. They're also changing the color of the return envelope, the secrecy envelope, so you don't confuse it with other envelopes. Mm -hmm. There's a watermark involved. But overall, the idea, you can read the details. <laughs> the there's a watermark. There's a, that's official. <laughs> that's a watermark involved. That's what they said. Yeah. Um, 3% of mail-in ballots are deemed invalid in recent elections. And so this is an attempt to take that 3% number and shrink it down a bit yeah. further. Well, and 3%, that's a lot of votes. I mean, a small it's percentage number, but it is not nothing. And also, why not simplify, streamline, and make mail-in ballots as simple and easy, clear as possible? It's like it's like remote work. This is the future. This, yeah. is, this is not going away. This is going to be part of our voting landscape. And, and we do need to make sure people understand the, the rules of the road. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Speaking well, of roads. Speaking of roads, um, if you've traveled on a major highway in New Jersey recently, particularly this weekend, you may have noticed that the holiday themed safety signs are back. The holiday themed so, safety signs. You know, those okay. big electronic message boards. Mm -hmm. There are some holiday messages. So a few examples of new ones this year. Year. Only Rudolph should be lit. Drive high, get DUI. That's a little edgy. Uh, yeah. Reckless drivers are worse than fruitcake. Oh, come on. Fruitcake's I know. not that bad. It doesn't deserve that. <laughs> Santa's watching. Put down the phone. And lastly, don't be a Grinch. Let them merge. I, see, I like these <laughs> don't signs. Don't be a Grinch. Let them merge. <laughs> I like these signs. Here's the thing. So last year, the feds told NJDOT, take the signs down. They're not allowed. Didn't really comment why. But they thought they so, were too funny, maybe, or something? I don't know. Maybe It's a vacuum of information. We don't know. Right. But this year they're back, so now I guess the question is, are the feds going to step in again? I don't know. But I would love to be the person in the federal government who's sitting there reading these lovely signs and deciding that I guess they're too clever. <laughs> They're too distracting. I don't know. I know Delaware does this, too, with some of their signs. I've seen the Delaware um, ones, Which yeah. I think they're funny. I, I do wonder, though, do drivers slow down to take pictures, and is that creating a hazard in and of itself? I would love to see the study <laughs> that proves the efficacy of these signs, because I think, my, my intuition says it, it might have the opposite effect. <laughs> um, only Rudolph should be lit. Something to think about for the holidays, folks. Another transportation story on our radar. Yesterday, the first public hearing for the Roosevelt Boulevard 
subway extension was held just yesterday in the Taconi neighborhood, northeast Philadelphia. You might have heard about this project. We've talked about it on our show. It's the idea, and it's been around for generations, mm-hmm. this idea, that you should take the Broad Street Line and extend it all the way up through northeast Philadelphia into Lower Bucks County, creating a major new transit artery for the city. This would be very, very expensive, but in recent years, some activists and politicians have really rallied around the idea, including Democrat Democratic State Representative Jared Solomon, who was on stage last night at this meeting. Here's what he had to say. Imagine the economic impact for a generation, the environmental positive impact for a generation of Philadelphians. This is our time to get this done. This is our time to get this done. What do you think, Cheryl? I mean, look, if they can get their money in order, which I think that has been the biggest barrier yeah. to this project it's moving billions forward. Billions of dollars, yeah. Um, but I, I'm. it's good that they're talking about it. It's like they're getting all their ducks in a row. Should that financing come in, they're like ready to go, yeah. right? Um, I do think that the Roosevelt Boulevard is a scary roadway to drive on. Absolutely. And the, so if they can get And the data backs piece, that up. Yeah. It's not just your fear. The, it's right. a dangerous road. I think it was ranked deadliest road. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this will definitely mitigate some of the traffic issues there and increase safety. But uh, we'll see. There are two more public meetings coming up. I am impressed that they have, I guess, even gotten this onto the agenda. Because yeah. this idea, like I said, is it's generations old. And it seemed for a long time like it was really not coming back. Mm-hmm. And some dedicated folks have helped revive the idea to the point we're having public meetings. Yeah. That's a long way from breaking ground. For sure. But, but it's a first step. Yeah, definitely gaining traction. Just want to mention there are two more public hearings, public meetings coming up December 4th and December 14th. Make your voices heard. Yep. Okay, so we have some feedback on this next story here. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary mm-hmm. folks, they have selected its word of the year this week. Okay, what is it? Okay. Now, I want to this preface is the, this, this is the word of 2023. The word the of word. 2023. Got it. Drum roll. <laughs> Authentic. Authentic. Yeah, see, I That's thought... That's the word of yes. 2023? I guess I always thought the word that they would pick for a certain year would be like a new word. Yeah, like new slang, slang word. Or, yeah. Right. Nope. Definition of authentic, which has several meanings, according to Merriam-Webster, can mean uh, uh, not false or imitation. Uh-huh. True to one's own personality, spirit, or character, and I think you're authentic, Shirley. Thank you. <laughs> I really do think that. I, I value authenticity. Um, <laughs> you're a straight shooter. <laughs> the reason sometimes it gets me into trouble, but <laughs> the reason Mary Marion Webster is saying that it chose this word is because of the quote substantial increase in searches for the word. As AI seems to be creeping into all facets of our lives. Mm. so And another one of the words that they highlighted, not their word of the year, is deep fake. Mm-hmm. So along those lines. Also, uh, another one, Riz. Yes. Which <laughs> Riz. R-I-Z-Z. Not fizz. Not biz. Riz. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is slang. It means romantic appeal or charm. Yeah. So I suppose it's a compliment if you have... Riz. Yeah, is that how you would use it? Like, you have Riz? We are the last people who should be having this conversation. <laughs> we need youth correspondence on this show. <laughs> We're uh, hearing it's short for charisma, I guess. Oh, it's short so. for charisma. Thanks, producers. Oh, my we have, gosh. We have, one, we have one young, hip producer, Paige Marie Bessler, <laughs> and she has helped us tremendously in this moment. Thank you, Paige. That makes so much sense now. Like, yeah, yeah you definitely say she has Riz. Or got maybe it. she got Riz. I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> he got game, she got Riz, who knows. Um, we do want to turn now to a much more serious topic, mm-hmm. our Newsmaker interview today. Uh, yesterday was the fifth day of the Israel-Hamas truce. Twelve hostages were released by Hamas after 53 days in captivity. Among those released yesterday was 84-year-old Dietze Heyman, the stepmother and grandmother of a family right here in Ardmore, just over the city line. That family had a chance to talk with Dietze briefly yesterday, and joining us now is Dietze's stepson, Amichai Shtema, and daughter-in-law, Corey Shtema. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on Studio Two. Thank you for having us. Thank you. First, you know, we are wondering, how is Dietze doing physically and emotionally? Uh, she seemed, I mean, we had a very short conversation. She seems she's do, doing uh, all things considered fine. She s- looks good. She relatively um, sounds good. Um, but we, you know, there's a very short conversation. She's still in the middle of evaluation, uh, medical evaluation. So we don't know uh, what is the outcome of that going to be. And do you do you all have a sense of when you might get a chance to talk with her again to get more information about her condition? Do you have point people, whether with the Israeli government or the American government, who can get you information? Um, sort of, sort of. What's the next step here, uh, Corey? Well, um, she uh, Dita has four children of her of her own who are by her side, um, and we're there uh, to welcome her. Um, and so we're we're talking directly with other family members uh, at this point. Now, there and is, so, I'm sorry, Corey, go on. Yeah, sorry. And and the advice to, to the families and to everyone is to really let people take their time to tell their own stories, um, how and when they are ready to do so. Now, you said that she has family with her. Did you find out, how did you find out right away when Dietze was put into, crossed over that Rafa boarding, border crossing? We... We basically watched TV, live TV, and uh, saw the images coming through from the time she was moving into the Red Cross uh, ambulance in Gaza, crossing the border, going from the ambulance to the building, and then from the... So every step we watch it, uh, it was actually the first time we have any indication she, she is alive. So right? we, wow. we uh, October 7, she was uh, you know, taken from her home and no information until yesterday, basically. Uh, no, no, zero, zero information come from anywhere tell us that she is alive or what's the condition. And that's actually very important because I think our main message is that the issues of the remaining hostages um, in, in Gaza should be the, you know, is the top priority, should remain the top priority because the, the family and for those families are waiting for them they have no information and they are in uh, complete dark. And uh, this, uh, you know, this is already more than seven weeks of no information. Uh, and it's uh, very painful uh, for everybody. So I think uh, first, if the hostages can remain uh, the f- top priority and releasing them, and people who are, or those who are not uh, released, be very uh, you know, helpful to the families in Israel to know what the situation is. So if they, you know, Red Cross allowed to go and visit them mm-hmm. or see what the condition and mm-hmm. give some information to those families that are, don't know anything mm-hmm. and they're really suffering. So I think that's the two main 
uh, issues here. Okay. Continue to release hostages and have information, information. the loved ones that are in captivity still and the families are, don't know anything about what they are aware about. And, and Corey, um, I want to bring you in here. Uh, we just heard about that vacuum of information. Part of your role, and, and you all have been very open through this um, with the media and your community, is making sure that the rest of us are still thinking about this. What is your message to the, you know, your, your, your neighbors, the Delaware Valley, moving forward over these next few weeks and months? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, and our message is, like Amichai said, which um, he said very clearly so, um, is to really amplify those messages. We are grateful, very grateful to the media who have kept the hostages front and center. We're grateful to our elected representatives who have done so as well. And our message would be to continue to do so. We have now seen, you know, many joyful people reunited but some of them have family members who are still in captivity, families that have been separated, and those who remain actually outnumber those who have been reunited. So please do not forget the people who were there. Amichai and I will be continuing to be with our community on the front line, showing their pictures and asking for their release. And, um, and, and please don't, don't move on with the stories until every last one of them is, is home. I can't imagine... Uh, what this time has been like for you. Um, when do you think you'll next be able to speak with Ditsa? Well, we are waiting for our cue. Like I said, we're in very close touch with um, other members of the family who were there in Israel. Most of the family is in Israel. Like I said, she has four children of her own, and Amichai's two brothers are in Israel, 20 grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. And so um, we are waiting to take the cue from her children who are with her. Um, and we hope to speak to her again soon. I mean, we hope to speak to her today or tomorrow or um, as soon as she's comfortable and able to do so. And uh, we are just waiting to take our cue from them. And we hope that we'll be able to travel soon to see her as well. Our own children are very eager to see their Safta, their grandma. Um, and as, as soon as we're we're able and, and she's up for it, um, will be there. And, and finally, uh, I imagine much of your energy over the last few weeks has been around trying to, to get Dietza home. Now you have to think about what happens next, how your family, how she uh, heals from this trauma. Have you allowed yourself, in about 30 seconds, um, uh, have you allowed yourself to think about that journey ahead? Yeah. Uh, in terms of what's a journey for her forward, that's uh, something that is still in the conversation with the family in Israel. But regarding ourselves here in Philadelphia, we'll continue, as Corey said, we're going to continue to, uh, you know, to, to stand for the, for the hostages still there. We will uh, continue the activities uh, that uh, we'll be able to do. And uh, yeah, this interview that you're doing now is something we, we willing and wish to continue doing so bring uh, and if, keep the issue in top mm -hmm. in the priority. And if I if I could also just yeah, add, really quickly, the yeah. question is yes, the community in Near Oz has also been harmed, right? A lot of the yes. houses were set fire to, books, and yes. so there is a real question of whether they can, in fact, mm. return there. Return home. So support for those communities is important, and the displaced people within Israel. Thank you so much. That is Corey Shtema and Amichai Shtema. 
uh, speaking about their thankfully just released uh, stepmother, Nitza Heyman. You have been listening to Studio 2 on WHYY. Stick with us. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Welcome back to Studio 2. Hello, I'm Avi wolfman Aaron, And I'm Shirley Min. I'm sure some of you right now are listening to this show from your home office, and that's a problem for Center City, Philadelphia. For generations, office workers have filled the neighborhood's many skyscrapers, creating an economy that revolved around their daily presence. But the abrupt shift to remote work threatens that ecosystem. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, the average number <laughs> in fact, the average number of workers per day in center city office buildings is somewhere between 50 and 60% of pre-pandemic levels, according to some data released this summer by the Center City District. Keep that name in your mind. But here's the good news. There are actually more people living in Center City today than there were before COVID hit. So maybe surely there's a ready-made solution mm-hmm. here. Take those empty offices turn them into more housing. Well, we wanted to talk today about how that might work and also more broadly about the future of our downtown. So to do that, we've brought in Paul Levy, president and CEO of the Center City District. We also have David Waxman, developer and founder of MM Partners, a firm that specializes in adaptive reuse projects. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about the state of Center City? Would you live in the neighborhood? Would you work there? Maybe you already do and you want to know what's coming next. Give us a call. 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. Paul, I wanted to start with you. What's the level of urgency here around how we rethink Center City? Sure. Do, do we have a 5, 10-year, 20-year runway to get this right? Or is it like, hey, we have got to like move now and act now, how do you think about this? Well, let me start with the positive news. Overall, the total recovery rate in Center City is 83% every day compared to where we were in 2020. That's the number of people sort of total circulating number of people all the time. Yeah. That's workers, residents, visitors, tourists. On weekends, we're at 95 and 97%. So let's be clear, we're very far along with recovery. As you said, we have more residents living in Center City than we did in 2019 and 2020. And on the visitor side, we're almost fully recovered. Our office district numbers over on West Market and JFK are about 65%. So that's where we are. But that varies tremendously by industries. Just think about healthcare and hospitality. On East Market Street, 88% of all workers are back, right? And And you're thinking what, Jefferson Hospital? Jefferson Hospital. It's very hard to get a good steak, right, remotely. (laughs) It's very good, hard to get healthcare, right? And there are many functions that can clearly be done best in person. Remote is a really big option. So one... I don't want to sound alarm bells. I think we're in a slower recovery in terms of office workers than people would like, but it's steadily coming back. You have major employers like Comcast who said four days a week because they realize it's key to innovation, to mentoring younger employees. There is a challenge with older buildings. And before we talk this urban doom loop phrase, which a few academics from Columbia invented, we have spent since 1998 converting more than 50 major buildings in Center City from office to residential to hotel, buildings you know, the PSFS buildings, buildings that are now dorms for University of the Arts students, 
part of Liberty Place is now condominium. So we have, and we have here today with us, an experienced people, people from the development community. We know how to do this. We need to accelerate doing this. But I don't think we give up on the office sector. I think because, as you said, an office worker is one person at a desk. There are the janitors in the building. There are the mechanical engineers who operate the systems. There are people who cook lunch at lunchtime. So when office workers don't come back, it affects lots mm-hmm. of other people's mm-hmm. jobs. I fully get and enjoy the flexibility of working remotely, but there are huge advantages when we come together. Mm-hmm. So is the answer, I mean, do you see this, and David, you can jump in here, like are apartment buildings and converting office space into res- residential, like the answer to bringing people back? I, I don't think it's for all the office buildings. I mean, you need certain characteristics of the buildings, like for instance, pre-war buildings very logically lay out as apartments, and to Paul's point, the 50 plus buildings that have been done, were sort of the logical easy ones. There's still some left. I'd say the challenge is like on Market Street, you have these newer buildings, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s vintage that are going to be more hard to convert to residential. Mm -hmm. David, can you just go further on that point? Because something changed in office space design Mm -hmm. in that post-war period in the 70s, 80s, 90s, sort of the back half of the 20th century. That's going to make this project harder. Explain that. Absolutely. So the floor plates on a lot of these buildings, there's not light and air in the interior of these buildings. So we, we've done a lot of industrial adaptive reuse projects where you take massive warehouses and you create what are called light wells within the building so that you can have a double-loaded corridor with units facing a light well. You can't really do that on these, these buildings. So they either have to be so cheap that you can have tons of dead space and that you're gross to net. And what that really means is the gross square footage of the building versus the net leasable area isn't efficient, but it doesn't matter because you bought the building so cheaply you can literally have dead space huh. or you buy the building so cheap and you sort of just figure out uses for it conversely like the class a top of the market office is doing well because you see a lot of companies downsizing from these older buildings into newer buildings with much nicer amenities and offices to draw the younger folks and mm. and, and not just the younger folks back into the office and you I mean, you have two office buildings actually more than two office buildings under construction you know parkway just completed the morgan lewis building they're under construction on chubb there's a new life sciences building across the street from there being built schuylkill yards and so you have new office construction which is quite interesting um it's just what do you do with some of these antiquated buildings that um are not logical to convert to apartments or hospitality or something that's obvious. So you mentioned the idea of something being purchased so cheap that you perhaps don't need the most efficient adaptive reuse to make it economically viable. So does that mean, Paul, I I guess, waiting for some building owners to just get so desperate that they offload these things really cheap? No, I don't think so. Let's just take buildings people know. Think of the public ledger building or the Curtis building. Mm -hmm. uh, Here's the Curtis building. Start as a printing plant. It was offices for years. Big, heavy floor plates, high ceilings. It's being converted to residential and life sciences, right? So that building lays out really well for that type of conversion. Those are people who remember what used to be the former Smith-Klein building up along uh, Ray Street. So the interior space is there. There are sports areas. There are healthcare areas. There are gym areas. So you can get clever with using those interior spaces. And then, you know, Morgan Lewis is moving up the street, and 1701 Market's getting converted to residential. So 
clearly the price matters and interest rates are high, which is a bit of a challenge. But my basic point is we have a very experienced real estate industry. We have an incentive here, the 10-year tax abatement for the conversion of these buildings. We've done a great job with historic preservation. So yes, there's an urgency, but there is no end of the world coming at this point. We've been through crises before and we've got very talented people working on them. And I guess, can the city wait it out, though? I mean, until something is figured out for these buildings that can't be... Well, well, that's the key issue, because an empty building means less real estate taxes to support the school district. It means less wage and business taxes to support the city. So, yes, there is a fiscal challenge here, and I don't want to minimize that in any way. We started with the real estate question, okay? Mm -hmm. But when these buildings sit empty, and, you know, Center City is 43% of all jobs in the city. Right, It's 45% of the wage tax and it's 20% of the real estate tax for the city. So this matters. The jobs in the neighborhoods matter. The the economy matters. So yes, we need to take this seriously. I just didn't want to go into this, the end of the world scenario, Mm -hmm. which some people Mm -hmm. are engaging in. We are speaking with Paul Levy, just heard his voice, president and CEO of Center City District, as well as David Waxman, uh, founder of MM Partners. They really specialize, are experts in adaptive reuse. It's one of the things we're talking about because there is this idea that perhaps some of the physical plant in Center City needs to be repurposed to meet the demands of sort of a, a post-pandemic world. I wanted, I, I'm sure you're going to push back on this, Paul, but I, but I, I, I want to ask just, just broadly speaking, the idea of an urban core that has a lot of commercial and business activity has sort of been implanted in our brains for generations. Is it possible that the future is a world where some of those opportunities are just more spatially, geographically spread out because people don't all want to come to the same place every day for work and for play? I mean, is it possible that that, that maybe we could embrace a sort of reduced center city? I'd say it differently, and I wouldn't push back on the basic concept. What we want is a mixed-use downtown, mm-hmm. a downtown that's office buildings, hotel, that's healthcare, that's residential, that's retail. The most successful and vibrant places have multiple reasons for people being there at a different time of day. We made mistakes in the 1950s and 60s to say, let's create an entire office district, or let's think about the space around Independence Mall, which is dead most of the time because yeah. most of the buildings don't mm-hmm. activate the street. What we're doing is taking former office buildings that were only occupied five days a week and filling them up with hotel guests and residents who are there. So the image isn't a smaller downtown. It's a more diverse downtown. It's a downtown that has many more people there at different times of day, which makes it safer, which is better for retail, which is better for vibrancy. So mixed use is the gospel that I would preach. Not as dependent on your nine to fivers, five day, they five are, day weekers. Uh, yeah. Again, you don't save the city with just office buildings. Yeah. But I want to be clear, those office buildings are providing jobs for people across the region. And the jobs in an office building are not just the people behind the desk. They're all the jobs in the kind of supply chain and all the ecosystem around them. But yes, not a single purpose downtown, mm. a multi-purpose downtown. I do find it interesting that more people are living in Center City uh, now than since before COVID hit. What do you think is behind that trend there? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have the unique perspective. I, I grew up here in Philadelphia in the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and it was 
you know, pretty crappy place. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky that I did, and I'm happy that I did. It was a great experience despite that. Not so, minting words there. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so like seeing what you see now, like the city's in an amazing place, yeah. even like with this sort of doom and gloom narrative that you hear from some parts and of the of spectrum, I think Philly's well positioned. I mean, people want to live where there's action. I mean, people don't want to live in the suburbs who don't have children, right? Like suburbs is great. If you have children, it's easy. Schools are, are good. You don't have that issue like you do in the city. But I think people want to be near restaurants. They want to be near shopping. They want to be around other people. Um, and, and to Paul's point about, you know, mixed use, I mean, that that is the mantra. And I think that's why people people want to be in uh, in downtowns. And I don't believe that's going to change. Well, just repeat what you told me about the building you're doing right now and proximity to 30th Street yep. Station and why that matters. Absolutely. So we recently acquired 21st and Arch, a vacant office building earlier this year, and we're converting it into 118 apartments with some and amenities. This is the, this used, to, used to be the Jewish Community Services building? Jewish Federation mm-hmm. building, okay, yes. Yeah, so we okay. acquired it from Jewish Federation. Um, and, you know, it was a very simple analysis when it was offered to us. The price was incredible. Um, and secondarily, it sits in a really great residential neighborhood that's on the cusp of Market Street, just blocks the 30th Street Station. You have new office development around it. It was, it was a no-brainer. Um, and, and I do think you have folks that are commuting one or two days a week to New York. Or and what rent would they pay there versus you? <laughs> they, you know, they'll... I mean, in New York versus... Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah. rent in New York is $5,000 a month average, which is insane. So mm-hmm. unless a young person has a, a, a generous parent who's you know, going to support them because no job, unless you know, they work at maybe a hedge fund or something, is going to pay them the salary they need yeah. to live there. What are you going to do? I mean, so Philadelphia has a lot of attributes going for it, uh, and we're just in this moment in time where there's a transition happening, and it's happening in all cities. And there's cities that are way, way worse off than we are. The other thing I would add to that, we know this from the national study we've done, is that workers who live within two miles of their job are back at much higher rates. Let's take San Francisco, which is the poster child for so-called failure. Mm -hmm. 80% of the people who live within two miles of their job of downtown San Francisco are back in the office. So having a large downtown population means you have more workers back. More residential feeds more office. Absolutely. Interesting. Um, You talked about the narrative, though, and and you contrasted it with the 70s and 80s, but there is still that narrative that... um, Perhaps it's not safe or people don't want to come in because they don't feel comfortable. I'm going to read an email here from Erica uh, who says, how does the violence on SEPTA affect the comeback of Center City? There were stabbings just a few nights ago in a subway platform, which further cements my reluctance to travel on SEPTA and therefore to leave my city neighborhood. It's a valid thought. I, I know the crime statistics don't suggest that there's been some great spike in Center City. However, however, Paul, you're talking about this idea uh, of people coming in routinely not for work but to have fun right and people are not going to come to a place to have fun if they don't feel safe so how do you combat that idea number one public safety is the largest concern people have as you said even though the statistics is that crime is down but quality of life problems problems on the subway system in the concourse we're very fortunate to have a mayor-elect who said this is her number one priority that is quality of life and community policing not overuse of police but police in partnership with social services so there's definitely an issue there's definitely a perception issue and a reality issue We've actually deployed 50 more security people, so we've got 100 out there. We've got a great partnership with all the institutions here. But having an incoming mayor who wants this for every neighborhood in the city, I think, is a real sign of optimism for us. Can I just follow up that quickly, though? Because I feel like if I, have, if I had to go to work at an office building in Center City, and maybe I, I didn't feel it was the safest, but I have to do it anyways. I mean, this is my job. If I'm coming downtown for a concert, uh, to, to have a drink, I mean, 
I don't have to do that. No one's obligating me to do that. So I really have to feel like there's a reward for me at the end and not a risk. I mean, how do you communicate that message to folks who are coming in for a different purpose, maybe not work? Oh, I wasn't sure where you're going. And let me first say that every employer needs to stop thinking about their office as an obligation and turning it into a destination. Mm. That is, they have to focus on making an experience for their employees that's not just you need to sit here. So there's a lot that needs to go on employers. Where I thought you were going, I'd like to joke that it's really funny that with 97% of people coming in the weekend, they're not afraid of bars and restaurants. They're <laughs> just afraid of the office. <laughs> but I mean, I don't, I don't want to be glib about this, but no, no, clearly that's, that's there point, is yeah. an ob- I don't want to minimize there are perception challenge that we all need to address and we're working on and there's a a significant homeless and mentally ill population who we need to provide good services for and that creates a lot of anxiety for people there's no doubt about that but the reality is that we've got substantial return of people that if you live closer nearby you you actually know if all of us who live in center city you know somebody on the street who's in trouble who's not dangerous right Mm -hmm. you realize they need help if you've never seen a homeless person before you have this high level of anxiety. And so I think there's a familiarity and a no understanding that their service is available. So again, not to minimize this challenge, but I mean, we partner police with Project Home staff, with our staff, no arrest, but connecting people with services. We know how to do this. We know how to get people help. But there's an anxiety level. This Look, these last three years were terrifying, right? It yep. was unsafe to be around other people. Center City lost 85% of the people who were there in three months. An empty city is, is something you're afraid of. Yeah. Every city's dealing with that. We're doing incredibly well with recovery, but we've got a way to go. And converting vacant office buildings is one of those strategies yeah. we need to do. Mm-hmm. I want to read a comment from Paul. So he was suggesting, and I don't know if the Center City District is partnering with SEPTA or in talks with SEPTA about regional rail and kind of extending out some of those um trains out because i think it's he's saying septa offering regional rail at a center city till at least midnight would be nice i guess he says the last train to delaware on a saturday is 10 30 western burbs is 10 45 it's kind of hard to kind of enjoy anything because that's sort of sort of when things get going yeah. um yeah. and then they, they don't want to be stranded in the city so are there any talks where maybe the schedules can be adjusted? Yeah, look, SEPTA has a significant challenge with the reduction in ridership. They have had federal funding that's closed that gap. They both want to increase frequencies, right, keep fares at some level, but they have less ridership right now, and so they're rebuilding. So yes, they are interested in better service, improved services, but that's a huge challenge to add service in this environment. Mm If they can work out what they're trying to do in Harrisburg, which is a more dedicated and sustained funding source for them, which they're negotiating right now, they'll be in a much stronger position. All transit agencies have benefited from federal help. That's going to run out for us in April of next year. David Waxman, founder of MM Partners, want to bring you back into this conversation. And I also want to cite uh, Jake Bloomgard at The Inquirer. has done some great reporting on an issue I'm about to bring up. Um, you mentioned earlier that a lot of single folks, folks without kids, are really attracted to Center City. But if we're moving toward this mixed-use future, can we get some families to live in Center City? What are the challenges? Is that something developers might be interested in trying to build out? Yeah, I mean, I think your number one challenge there is the schools, right? And Mm -hmm. so you you take a look and you look at the neighborhoods that have uh, stronger performing public schools and you notice the real estate in those neighborhoods for apartments or 
you know, more importantly for condos or for sale homes is very elevated, right? Because people want to move to those neighborhoods and pay their taxes and send their kids to public school versus private school. And you look around the private school landscape, aside from it being expensive, you know, Friend Select has, what, 50 seats. Philadelphia School has 50 seats. GFS has 50 seats. It's not a lot. So I think the number one issue really is the education system. Secondarily, you know, there is talk from developers of, of doing apartments that are, you know, quote unquote, family size. I think the challenge you have there is really from a financing perspective. Um, the lenders and the equity providers are used to studios, micros, mm-hmm. one beds and two beds. Um, they like what they know. They, they know like it. certainty. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. And so I think that, you know, developers are, are opportunity driven. And to the extent that the government or other sources of sort of quasi government funding want to incent that, you create tax credits or sources of cheap secondary financing. And I think the market will sort of always figure out ways to get creative if the incentive is there. And so back to this point of these more difficult buildings to convert, if the government were to provide tax credits that you could sell, like they do with historic tax credits or low-income tax credits, uh, or subordinate financing that's below market and cheap, these buildings will get figured out that much quicker. And I know Representative Waxman, who's not a relative, has been looking at that. <laughs> it, gonna, unfortunately, uh, has been looking at this issue at the state level. Um, you did have a report come out from the White House a couple weeks ago of like a blueprint on how to take advantage of various government programs to convert buildings. And I, I believe there's a professor at Penn who sort of spearheaded that. Um, they're heading in the right direction. Um, but you know, that's sort of how, how we look at it. I mean, not so much to disagree with something was said, but amplify. There are three K-8 public schools right in the core of Center City, Meredith, Greenfield, and McCall, filled up with Center City families. There are 10 more K-8 public schools that stretch up to Girard and down to Tasker, filled with Center City families and families from across the city. We operate Sister Cities Park and Dilworth Park. They are filled with kids every weekend. So Clearly, there are a lot of families with children. They're not living in apartment buildings. They're living in the townhouses and row houses that surround downtown. Clearly, when you get to high school, it becomes a challenge, and many people choose to move to the suburbs. But I wouldn't want to leave an impression that there aren't families with Mm. children. New product that's getting built today is apartments for smaller units because the demand is strongest there. But there's thousands of other units, 70,000, 80,000 other units across the downtown. And just one, you know, there's way more kids growing up in Center City now right. than when I grew up. I mean, like, right. it was a pretty small cohort of right. folks that we all kind of knew each other growing up in the, in the 70s and 80s versus today, where it's, it's more the norm. Hmm. Well, David, does this idea of converting office space into apartments, does this help or harm kind of like the availability of affordable housing in the area. And I kind of want to talk about this comment that we just got from Betty. And she writes, with all these empty offices, can't we make some of them into affordable housing, shelters, or efficiencies for people experiencing Mm. homelessness? Mm. Absolutely. And I think, again, to my earlier point, if you can incent that behavior, you can you can make it happen. And so the ways in which to do that are zoning bonuses, tax credits, cheap subordinate financing or even construction financing that's cheap, uh, you then can sort of model your deal to have some portion of the building be those uses. And I think it's a great opportunity to do it because a lot of these office buildings are massive, right? Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that you can take a portion of it and address these dire needs, it's great. And, and you can do it in, in, in a holistic approach where it's the same entrance. You know, none of this stuff like in New York where they would have separate entrances for the affordable units, which is a travesty. Um, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're doing a project. Some good in, New York bashing today, in this yeah. Room, which I appreciate. <laughs> we're, we're doing a project like this in East Falls right now. That's a seventy thirty market rate senior affordable 
mm. project in partnership with a nonprofit, um, New Cortland, and we're self-subsidizing it. So, I mean, it, it, it can be done, mm. but if, if, if this behavior is wanted, you have to incent it, uh, and developers will figure out a way to make it happen. Inter- interesting perspective. That is David Waxman, developer and founder of MM Partners. We also heard from Paul Levy, actually outgoing president and CEO of Center City District. Thanks to you both for being here on Studio Two. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And congratulations, uh, Paul, on the next chapter. Great. Thank you. Um, Shirley, coming up next, abrupt shift to a <laughs> topic uh, about pigs as pets. <laughs> More coming on Studio Two. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Welcome back to the sty. This is Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> I'm Shirley Minden for <laughs> something. I had to do something. Oh boy, I'm Shirley Minden for Cherry Greg. So Avi, I've heard you talk about your cat CJ on the show before. Shout out CJ. I love you, CJ. Aww, meow. If you count my son's two hermit crabs. We have no pets. <laughs> uh, not a pet yeah, person. Not, not a pet person. My kids have been campaigning hard for a dog, so I don't know. We'll see. TBD. I kind of want to help them with the campaign. No, no, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> I won't do it. Never well, listen, mind. some of our listeners may be surprised to hear that pigs make great companion animals. Yeah, P-I-G-S. Mm. Also, they're, they are pretty cute. And there are a lot of misconceptions about pigs, about their cleanliness, their cleverness, their curiosity, it's all often overlooked. Now, maybe we're piquing your interest, but not everyone is cut out for pot, billy, pig, parenthood. <laughs> Joining us now to talk about their pigs and the personalities and how they tug on our heartstrings and what adopting a pig really looks like is Susan Armstrong Maggotson. She is the founder of the Pig Placement Network and the owner of Ross Mill Farm in Bucks County. Susan, welcome to Studio Two. Well, thank you, Hobby. <laughs> I'm very glad to be here. Susan, this is Shirley here. And I just want you to kind of paint a picture for us. Can you describe Ross Mill Farm? Like how many pigs you have? Are the pigs roaming freely? Give me a picture here. So Ross Mill Farm is a typical Bucks County um, estate that was built uh, or founded in about 1730s. So it's got a lot of history behind this uh, space. Um, but when uh, 1990, Ross Mill Farm became um, a place for pigs, uh, pigs to find happiness and homes. Um, and so they are wandering around. I have about 165 hmm. pigs that are there. So they're all not wandering around at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of live in little herds. So we have a, a, you know, the barn herd comes out and then we have the lodge herd that comes out. So they, 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 um, they prefer small to live in smaller little groups. Pigs really have, I think, Susan, a rough and unearned reputation. Just the term pig in common parlance, not mm-hmm. very positive, swine, boorish behavior. None of this uh, is good. But uh, it turns out Pigs are very clean, right? They're very, they're very friendly. They're very smart. Give us the truth about pigs. The truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> yes, please. I can handle the truth. <laughs> they are. 
and just like you said, they're clever, they're curious, they're clean, they make great house companion pets. But in addition to that, when you have one, you recognize other things about pigs, like their emotions. They have, uh, they experience the same emotions as we do. Hmm. How do you They're know? In... Like, <laughs> yeah, explain that a little further. The emotions, well, they are a little stoic, so you don't always recognize them quite the same. They're not as expressive as uh, some other animals or people, but you definitely know when they are um, a little upset with you because maybe you left them for the whole day and they didn't like that. Um, so they will express their emotions in a lot of different ways. Do they, you know, Avi kind of touched on it. We have these sayings, you know, this is a pig sty yeah. and it, you look, you're filthy, whatever, or yeah. whatever. But are they smelly? No, no, they're not at all. As a matter of fact, the pig will take on the odor of its environment. So if uh, if you have in your past smelled a pig and you found it offensive, it's because its environment was oh. offensive. Do they, um, are they inside, like, are they indoor pets? I guess, because just looking at the pictures on the website, some of them kind of look big. So maybe we should talk about, like, how big can they get? And then can they be indoor pets? They can be indoor pets. Absolutely. In fact, they much prefer... Uh, to live indoors, uh, but they're also uh, great for a barnyard type of pet. Um, when you have a couple of goats and a couple of uh, sheep and a couple of pigs and you prefer, they also uh, do very well in outside environments. But inside environments are what I specialize in, uh, are pigs that live indoors. And their size is never too big. Hmm. Uh, they um, now, well, of course, it could get too big, but uh, the companion pigs are somewhere between 80 pounds and 160 pounds. Now, that's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. But like dogs, they can go from, you know, six pounds to mm, 100 pounds. The pigs are very stocky, very bone heavy. So their weight isn't really a reflection of how big they are. They're about the size of an average size dog, or mm. a little bit a little bit larger. So what kind of space do I need to have? We, we just had a segment, Susan, talking about people living in center city high rises, <laughs> and I'm thinking maybe that's not great for a pig pet. So what type of space should I have? What should I be prepared for before I inquire you know, about adoption. Well, you're absolutely right, Avi. They should not be in any kind of high rises. They really need to have a backyard, but not much more than a backyard that your dog or children play in. Mm. That's that's adequate. And so. you kind of play piggy matchmaker, right? So, like, how are you pairing pigs with potential owners? Well, uh, I do that, and I do a fairly good job of matching the pig. There are pigs who are um, frightened of children. Um, there are pigs who have more aggressive types of behaviors. 
So we matchmake those uh, pigs to the people so that their expectations are in line with what they're actually going to get. So it's very important that they do homework. Mm-hmm. And not just look at the internet to do that homework, but actually get it from truthful, um, reputable websites. And I guess first off, you should find out if you if your town even allows you to have a pet pig. That's correct. Zoning is a really number one thing we always ask people. They need to make sure that zoning is going to be okay with them uh, having a pig because people really shouldn't just have one pig by the way they should have a pair of pigs Hmm. that makes for a better uh, a better experience with uh, owning pigs as a pet interesting before we let you go we have about a minute left susan what was your uh uh, pig spiration how did you (laughs) how did you become so interested in the in these animals such that you made it your life work and started this remarkable farm It was very organic. I love pigs, but I loved animals first. Mm. And I had a lot of animals and it was about the time that I wanted to to really retire from my career. So it just kind of evolved. Mm. And by the way, (laughs) populate pigs are not allowed in Philadelphia. (gasps) No, I didn't know that. Should should we change that law? I think we should change that law, and I'm all for it. I'll be right there in City Hall asking for a different, you know, to change that zoning. But make sure you have a yard. You make sure you have a yard. And some people in Philadelphia do. Right, um, right. Thank you so much, Susan. That is Susan Armstrong Magidson, uh, founder of the Pig Placement Network and owner of Ross Mill Farm in Bucks County. Susan, thanks so much for joining us today on Studio Two and schooling us on pigs. Thank you. Well, Shirley. It has been a pleasure. Oh, so much fun, always. We're going to have you back. You keep doing a good job, so we're going to keep having you back. You see how this works, right? I see how this works, and I'm I'm all in. Okay, good, as long as you're all in. Also all in, our producers. Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. For more of our show, head to whyy.org slash studio2. You can download the show wherever you get your podcast rate and review from Studio 2. At WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Shirley Min. Thank you so much for joining us.